Hello, and welcome to this edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website wherepeteris.com. I'm the managing editor, Mike Lewis, and today I'm joined by David Lafferty and author and journalist Austin Ivory. This is part two of our interview with Austin. In the previous part, we discussed his interview with Pope Francis, and we also discussed the state of Catholic media today. In part two, we discuss Pope Francis and his vision for a post-pandemic church, as well as the role of evangelization, both in a world that doesn't know Christ and in a church that is sometimes hostile to the message of the Holy Father. So stick around. So, Austin, I want to give you my take on something and see if you agree with me, see what you have to say about this. If I was to put forth a criticism of Pope Francis, at least his approach, and I'm I'm talking about this as somebody who lives in the United States, which is only six to seven percent of the of the global church. And I understand that we are of while we're of great influence, we're not perhaps the highest priority of the church, that he does very little to mollify the concerns of the American conservative Catholic. And that's one of the reasons why I started Where Peter Is, because I I believe that I can speak and our other contributors can speak to that mindset. But part of me is beginning to think that Francis's tolerance uh, for certain media outlets for certain prelates, for certain Catholic leaders and their message. I I wrote about why hasn't he formally disciplined Cardinal Burke? Why hasn't he uh, excommunicated Vigano? We have uh, an emeritus bishop in Texas who is who does not believe he is Pope and has written this publicly, um, which is the biggest example, the most clear example of schism one can imagine. Yet, and I think Francis is in some ways, maybe being merciful to them, allowing them to find their own way. I know, I, my guess is that if he was to strip Cardinal Burke of his red hat, that wouldn't lead to Cardinal Burke's repentance or lead to his change of heart. I think he would become even more outspoken and militant. Yet, as a, as a lay Catholic in the United States who floats around in these conservative Catholic circles, I mean, that's, that's, that's my home. That's, I, I can't, while I've, gained a lot of friends that are are much more to the left and I've begun to appreciate their perspective my foundation is is conservative catholicism and I guess I'm observing that there's this general consensus in this crowd that pope francis is is problematic that certain bishops who are well known to be not on board with his program you mentioned archbishop chapu we've talked about cardinal burke there are a number of others who clearly aren't with the Francis program. They're looked at as heroes. They're looked at the examples of, of orthodoxy rather than the Pope, who is the guarantor of orthodoxy, as the church teaches. There's no sense of the ecclesiology of the church. I think, I think they were raised, and I, maybe a lot of the, the um, 
converts you speak of maybe do see, okay, I need to accept these doctrines which are unchanging without thinking of of them in terms of the living magisterium that's promulgated from Jesus Christ through the apostles and their successors. And I feel like there's a, my feeling is that there's a lot of recatechesis that needs to take place. One of the criticisms that we get from the left is why do you bother with these people? Uh, they're crazy. They're, they're fringe. Nobody cares what they have to say. Well, they're the Catholics who are, are having children, the, they're, and, and the children are staying in the faith. I would, I would guess that, and this is probably the biggest problem for the future, is that I would guess that a majority of diocesan seminarians in the United States are fans of Taylor Marshall and or Michael Voris and or 1 Peter 5. Father Z has a huge influence over them when it comes to liturgy. I see the U.S. church, and I I believe it carries over into Australia and Canada and and Great Britain as well. I, I see the church losing its bearings and I it's it's like a slow moving car crash. It's not abstract people out there. For me, it's my friends, it's my family, it's people that I people in my my parish men's group, it's priests I respect. I mean, I Monsignor Charles Pope is in my archdiocese. My brother, who's a priest, was under him for three months at his parish. I love Monsignor Pope, and yet I've seen him go in this direction. And, and I feel almost helpless to stop it. And part of me wishes that Pope Francis and, and some of these uh, American bishops who, who are on board with him could do a better job of, of helping Catholics learn. I mean, I have my little, our little blog. We're doing what we can. I mean, you've been doing a hero's job on social media and Twitter, but we develop these reputations. Who are we? It's not like we have, well, I mean, you have the Pope's ear <laughs> to some degree, but uh, it's not like we have a ton of Episcopal recognition. We have, we've received kind words from a number of bishops. We've received kind endorsements, but I don't know. I, I, I just worry about overall, I see that this, that this resistance is being set in deeply. And my, my big concern is for young priests and seminarians, because if something doesn't change, 30 years from now, they will be the leaders of the church and what they will be teaching when they look back 30 years at the Francis pontificate was he was a horrible pope. He taught error. He wasn't orthodox. He led the church off the rails. And now it's my job to, to bring things back. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but this is, this is what I'm seeing. And this is, this is why I do what I do. And probably part of the reason why you do what you do. I get what you're saying. And of course, you know, the heart with which you've just said everything you've just said is part of the reason that where Peter is, is so special, you know, that you got, you know, David and, and, and all of you, Dan, um, I think you're, you, you see, you know, you're, you're, you're people of God, you're coming out of the, you know, the sheepfold and you're seeing, you're seeing the flock and you're going, these people need to understand what's going on. And, and yeah, the primary task of communication is to is to clear things up when you see that people are misunderstanding and you know so i think it's great so 
I agree that there is a gap. I agree that there's a gap of understanding and there is a gap of communication between the papacy and what I might call large swathes of not just Catholic America, but, you know, what I might call Catholic conservative culture. But I would just say this. I don't think it's for want of the Pope's efforts to communicate and to teach. I mean, I think he's an extraordinarily clear and generous and patient teacher. Yeah, he, he really couldn't have been clearer in his teachings on all kinds of things. I mean, these, these, these lengthy documents, which bend over backwards uh, to take into account resistance and opposition and objections, the endless interviews that he does. On, on And of course, what happens is, you know, those people like you and me who are listening out for these gems go, well, that's great. He's clarified this. He's clarified that. Other people go, oh, he's creating confusion and it's all very ambiguous and you know so in other words you know i just keep thinking of you know jesus constantly trying to teach again you know people just not hearing because they hear what they want to hear because everything is filtered and i think you know to some extent you have to and i i've been on my own journey here i think i got very very troubled back in 2016 particularly with the amoris opposition and i got really dragged down by i got very upset by it and then i kind of came through that and i said you know this is a very small number of people. And I don't mean numerically small. I mean small in the sense that, because of course they might be many thousands and they may be, but what I mean is in terms of the whole body of the, of the church, these are people who spend an inordinate amount of time often, you know, online worrying about things. They tend to be more intellectual types. Actually, my experience of going to the parishes, when I go, I always look forward to giving a talk in the parishes. And in the States, by the way, I gave some great, you know, I had some great parish events, just meeting ordinary people. They get him. They love him. Yeah, sometimes they have questions and they have criticisms and, you know, but but basically there, there's there's that basic trust that you were talking about is there. So I've kind of come to the conclusion that in a way that w- there's a there's a there's a worried class of Catholic that's kind of permanently, w- you know, worried on either side. And I think you know, we, there's the commentariat and so on. But I think we mustn't get too caught up. I mean, there are there is a filter. There are ideological uh, uh, blinders that prevent the reception of Francis. And I think there are some particular characteristics unique to the United States, a country, by the way, which I love, and a church which I love and I deeply admire. But I mean, I'll just say what I think, you know, in a nutshell, I think is a lot of what's going on in the US. A lot of the problem in the church in the US is is the glory of its church is it's just so rich and powerful. It's got so many wonderful, powerful institutions, which came out of the ghetto culture of the 1950s when Catholics were rejected by the WASP culture, and they created these amazing institutions. The problem is that then life has become about maintaining those institutions. And the mindset which often goes with, you know, establishing positions in law and culture and power and so on, which are all about the defense of spaces. And I think that has prevented the church from entering into an evangelizing missionary mindset of the sort that Francis has been seeking to introduce, which is why in Europe, where our institutions, our Catholic institutions are far more broken down, you know, it's far more secular here. Uh, we're further down that road. And therefore, I think Francis's message, which is it's all about offering the encounter with Christ. You know, the church needs to go out of its institutions. I think that message is understood much, much more readily. So I think that's part of the resistance in America is to that. And then partly it's also the culture war stuff. But the point is that, you know, these 
heavy ideological filters or blinders, you can't easily remove them simply, and you can't remove them simply by communicating more, because actually the more you speak, the more the message is just heard, because messages are about reception as much as anything else. I don't know whether David would agree with that. Yes, yes. Um, one one thing this, this actually brings up is, that, that came to mind when you were talking, is Pope Francis's attitudes towards I guess the Catholics on the other side of the spectrum. So like say the, the church in uh, Germany, where we've seen a push for some fairly, you know, radical reforms. um, And we may see the same thing again in the, uh, there's uh, Australia is having a a plenary council coming up. I found the Pope Francis's letter to the church in Germany to be a really profound uh, intervention that, that told me a lot about his attitude. But I'm wondering if you could maybe expand a little bit on Pope Francis's attitudes toward synodality and how he's sort of subtly offering a kind of teaching to this this other wing of the church. Not, I mean, he's been sort of you know trying to teach the uh, the, the conservative wing, but then he's also got to deal with this this sort of ultra progressive wing on, on the other hand. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Well, I mean, synodality is at the heart of this pontificate, as you've kind of implied. And what is synodality? Synodality is the process of involvement of the people of God in the pastoral strategies and decisions which the church develops. So it's about consultation, it's about dialogue, it's about participation, it's about listening, it's about walking together, which is what synodos means. The synods themselves, um, at least the synods that take place in Rome, are what they've always been, which is Uh, bodies where bishops, only bishops, vote. But they do so at the end of a lengthy process of crucial word discernment. And what is discernment? Discernment is about listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, often through knotty problems, thorny issues, where there is often confrontation and paralysis and ideological division. So the idea of a synod is you can bring that disagreement in and in this protected ecclesial space, uh, which has its own kind of rules, which Francis, I think, has been very good at establishing. You know, there has to be an area of confidentiality. You listen carefully, but you speak boldly and honestly. And so through that process, what he's listening out for as the successor of St. Peter is where the spirit is offering a breakthrough into a new way of thinking, which transcends what can often be stale polarizations. Now, to get the Francis pontificate is to understand that what he's, he's not so much he who is leading the church, but he who is allowing the Holy Spirit to lead the church. And that's a really important distinction. He's creating the space by which that happens. But that involves also being quite strict in putting down boundaries and saying, no, we're not going to move ahead where that breakthrough has not happened. Now, at the Amazonian Synod, as you know, there was a big move on the part of the local church to ordain women as deacons and to ordain married men in remote areas. As you know, that became the cause celebre of the Synod. Now, Francis, who was happy to have that discussion because it's a very real pastoral challenge and it's a very real issue. In the course of the Synod, nonetheless felt uncomfortable at the polarization, the rigidity of the the two standpoints, and he felt that there hadn't been that kind of breakthrough. And he used, in Querida Amazonia, he used a lovely Spanish word, desborde, which is something like, very hard to translate, means overflow or overspill. So his idea of the way God works, or rather the Holy Spirit works in these things, is to kind of spill out of and over our own polarizations and our dichotomies. 
he didn't sense that. Karina Masonia is, in a way, him hoping to, to, to break through that. Now, what, what, what all this means is that Francis is not going to simply say, yes, let's teach church discipline in one area or another simply because there's a popular demand for it. In other words, it has to be discerned. It has to be something that, that shows that the, the Holy Spirit is in charge. And the sign of that is a greater unity and uh, among in the body. And he has a very, uh, a very sophisticated, very fine sense of how the Holy Spirit operates within institutions and within bodies. So that's why it's wrong, completely wrong, to, to think of Francis as seeking to impose some kind of agenda, progressive or otherwise. He really isn't. And when he senses that that is happening in a, at a purely human level, whether it's a kind of American worldliness, which is seeking to impose, I don't know, a libertarian idea of the market, or a German progressive liberal idea that, you know, in order to have female equality, we have to have women priests, which is something I don't think he accepts at all. You know, he will, he will, he'll resist. So in that sense, he's, he's a very, very strong leader if he doesn't sense any spirits there. And I think the synodality is something he wants to introduce at every level of the church. He's made that clear. And the fact that these synodal processes are happening in Germany and in, in Australia is fantastic because the people of God needs to be discussing. But let's not mistake this for some kind of human uh, parliament by which, you know, the church ends up changing things simply through democratic, you know, lobby, because that ain't going to happen. What will hopefully happen is that the churches in those places will come better to understand uh, that their task is to evangelize and to understand that the obstacles to the reception of the gospel message in their society and how they can develop strategies to overcome those obstacles you know in other words it's all about bringing the gospel to to contemporary society and you know we haven't discussed this yet but the post-covid world will be a world in which the church will either be a field hospital which is why your podcast is prophetically named it will either be a field hospital or it won't or it won't matter because this is a time of suffering and pain and the church has to be there alongside people and ultimately synods are about a ways of overcoming the obstacles to the church's proximity to people to humanity when we talk about obstacles this has been an observation of mine regarding and obviously people hate using the word conservative and liberal or orthodox and dissident but but you know what we're talking about I find that when it comes to the Catholic conservatives and the Catholic conservative side, a different approach is needed to evangelize them because they're not going anywhere. They're firmly invested in the idea that they are orthodox, practicing, faithful Catholics, whereas I find that on the left, maybe a more gentle approach is required because they either feel that they aren't being listened to or they are on the verge of of leaving like they they might if if they don't like what the church is is putting out they'll just walk away and i think francis's understanding of modernity and his discussion of encounter or evangelize and don't proselytize is very tuned into that reality whereas he makes these jokes, people call them insults, but when he does it, he never directly refers to a person when he's criticizing, you know, they say, why does he keep insulting faithful priests? Well, what faithful priest has he actually called out by name? He hasn't. He's, he's noted these tendencies and believe me, 
anyone who knows more than 10 priests has met at least one or two that that fits this stereotype. But I think I think that's that's part of it. And I guess my question for you refers to going forward. One question is, what do you gather is Pope Francis's vision for the post-lockdown, post-pandemic church? Part two of that question is, what do you see your role in the post-pandemic church? And number three, I guess it's a little selfish, but what do you advise for myself and the other contributors at Where Peter Is? What direction we should be going in? I know you follow our site closely. Maybe you see some strengths and weaknesses or things that will benefit us in the long run, things that maybe we spend too much time on spinning our wheels. I'm curious to know what your thoughts would be, especially as time changes and we're entering into a a new phase of, of Francis's papacy. I agree. We're now entering into a new phase, into a new world. It's going to be a new world for humanity, and it's going to be a new world for the church. And I, I want to just refer to an article which came out recently. It's published in American magazine by the great Czech priest thinker, uh, Thomas Halleck, and it's called Christianity in a Time of Sickness. Really, really worth reading that essay. Put that essay alongside Francis's interview with me of April the 8th, and I think you get the, 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 the vision of what's coming. And, you know, it's difficult to talk about in a few phrases because it would be very easy to, to fall into a kind of cliches or stereotype. But, but the fundamental thing about that church is, I've already said, the field hospital is fundamental. Humanity is going to be entering a time of deep uncertainty and suffering, and the church must be alongside it. This is how the gospel spread in the early church. Uh, it didn't spread through the force of law and culture. It didn't have the support of the state and of elites. It had the power of testimony of charity. And charity linked to the experience of the mercy of Christ, overwhelmed. You know, and in fact, that was what led to hospitals and the whole idea of healthcare originates there. So you know, the church isn't anymore a hospital in a literal sense, although it does have hospitals. But the church needs to be, as Thomas Halleck says in this article, a kind of a force for immunity uh, in a society in which there is the virus of hatred, of distrust, of fake news, of uh, scapegoating of people and so on. So the, the church deeply involved in uh, and walking alongside uh, humanity in crisis, a church that is not that is rooted in but not focused on its institutions and its parishes and i say this because really what you're seeing with the virus is the is the acceleration of the tendencies which were first identified back in the parasida and which are implicit in evangelii gaudium so in evangelii gaudium francis is trying to say with a kind of urgency to people look you know you can't rely on catholic institutions to transmit the faith it's just not happening. And it's not happening for all kinds of reasons we can discuss, but it's, hap- it's to do with, with, with technocracy, with globalization, with fragmentations. But through the force of testimony, you have to, uh, and through the power of the, the salvific power of God's mercy, which you have experienced at first hand, we must all become missionary disciples in that sense. So, and then I think the other thing in, in Halleck's article, which chimes really well again with Francis, and, and Halleck, by the way, cites Francis's words to the cardinals on the eve of his election as Pope, when he, he repeated a, a famous anecdote, a story he tells about, or an anecdote, which is 
in Revelation, we, we, we see Jesus knocking at the door to be let in. But I sometimes think that Jesus is on the inside of the sacristy asking to be let out. Yeah. That, that we have Jesus trapped, you know, and we need to let him out. And so this idea of a, of a fundamentally missionary church, which is deeply engaged with the seekers of our time. Yeah. So Halleck says, where is the, you know, Jesus says, meet me, the resurrected Jesus says, meet me in Galilee. Right. What is the Galilee of today? The Galilee of today is in the seekers. Look, you know, you guys are younger than me. The statistics are all showing that young people are extremely open to all these things which, you know, are, are at the heart of our faith, but they're seeking, they're distrustful of institutions. Proselytism doesn't work and, and is against the gospel. What works is accompaniment and listening and being able to walk with the young, the old, and so on. And so I think that's the that's what that's the, the church that Francis is helping to bring about and to bring and to nurture. And what acts against that is this clinging to institutions, a fantasy about restoration of Christendom, which ain't going to happen, but people yeah, through alliance with the state and so on. That, that, those are all the things which get in the way of, of this evangelizing missionary church. So, I mean, I think you guys do a fantastic job. My only kind of advice would be, you know, is to, is to carry on doing what you're doing, which is to, I mean, I think what Francis needs, by the way, is not cheerleaders. You know, Spadaro once said this to me. You know, Francis doesn't need people to raise flags and say, I'm, I'm for Francis, you know, uh, and, and take on his enemies and so on. That's not, that's not the business we're in. We're in the business of walking with Peter as he guides us like Moses through this time, through this desert. And we need to constantly try to understand him, even though he often challenges us, to understand him and to explain him and, and, to, and to, I suppose, to, to help him to communicate the heart of the gospel, which is what he's trying to do all the time, every day uh, in, in, his, in his ministry. And that, that's, I think, the task of all church communicators, wherever you stand, is to be mediators, to use a very big, uglier word, to be mediators between, between the papacy and the local church, between the church and humankind, but above all, to listen and to engage with, with the seekers of our time, because that's where something new is being born. One of the most, I think, profound things that Pope Francis said in that, that interview was that, you know, this is, he's talking about, you know, during this, this lockdown, this is the, the time to go to the underground. And he mentioned um, Dostoevsky's notes, notes from underground. And, and to me, that really resonated. And I was thinking of, you know, Dostoevsky's underground man, this person who's completely alienated from modern society and from other people, from himself even. And, you know, thinking that, during this lockdown, we're all kind of experiencing a little of what it's like to be that sort of underground person, right? We're kind of, we're, we're not able to, to leave our houses most of the time. So we have to find new ways to, to reach out and communicate with other people. And, and maybe that's part of it is we're going to have to, we're in going through this process of what he called, you know, conversion through remembrance or, or, or through remembering. So like remembering what it's like to be lonely to be alienated to be sort of cut off from society to be uncertain about the future and maybe where this is a, a necessary remembering and that's that'll that'll lead us uh forward in our in our efforts at evangelization to to really continue going into the the underground to continue you know reaching out to to people who are even in normal times sort of locked out um or locked down in their houses or, uh, you know, whether we're talking about the poor or the old or the alienated, 
this this seems to be the the perfect time to engage in that in that kind of method of evangelization. So I don't really have a question there. It was just more of a comment following on what you said that resonated with with something that uh, Pope Francis said. And uh, I'm glad you picked up on that, that quote there in, in the interview about Dostoevsky, because he also says uh, that he talks about encountering Christ in the flesh of the poor. And this is, uh, it's, it's the Good Samaritan. Where is Christ to be found now in the pandemic and in the post-pandemic world, in what will probably be the biggest recession since the 1930s? Yeah, where will, where will we find Christ? Will we find Christ by taking refuge in the past and in institutions? Now, our institutions are important. They will continue to be important. And by the way, you know, nothing in any of this experience of, of the Zoom church, you know, I mean, Francis has made clear this is a temporary thing. This isn't a new church that's evolving. The church will always be the people of God physically present around the altar with the pastor and so on. We, we will continue to be the church, but... It doesn't have to be a big institution. It doesn't have to be an important institution. Uh, and it isn't, so the focus, our focus is so much on how we keep these things going rather than listening to what the Holy Spirit is inviting us to, the new thing that we're being invited to. And I think Francis is offering that guidance in this interview, saying two things, really, you know, where is Christ? Christ is in the, is in the poor. If you go out to encounter the poor in the flesh, which means, of course, the works of mercy, then you meet Christ. And then the other thing he says is, when he talks about um, <clears throat> Mansoni's 19th century novel, and he quotes one of the characters to say, God never leaves his miracles unfinished. And Francis then says, if you look at the people dying at the moment for us, the health workers, the doctors, the nurses, giving their lives in the UK, most of them are migrants, you know, giving their life to save elderly people who, yeah, there's something happening here which must make us sit up and revisit all our priorities and learn from, yeah, the human being and the service of, of the human must be now put at the centre of our economy, of our politics, of everything that we become about. So, yeah, we must we must help to nurture that. We must help to 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 bring that about, and and that's the that's the journey into the underground, because we're no we can no longer you know, take refuge in the distractions of consumerism and production. Of course, we will continue to try. Sin will remain. What I mean is that with a collapsing economy, you know, those things just aren't there anymore, and it becomes much more the question of solidarity and fraternity becomes absolutely fundamental. And I mean, just just you know, anecdotally, people have asked me about Francis and the pandemic, and does he have any experience of this? And the answer is, of course, no. Jorge Mario Bergoglio has never lived through a pandemic, at least as far as I know. But he has lived through what's probably the biggest economic collapse of any Western country in recent history, which is in 2001, when Argentina uh, went through a massive, massive recession, which they had, you know, 50% unemployment, supermarket shelves were empty, people literally went hungry. Um, and, and what did the church do? You know, Cardinal Bergoglio was then Archbishop of Buenos Aires. He mobilized the church. On every street corner, the church had a presence. Everybody felt the presence of the church. Whatever their need was, whether it was physical, psychological, spiritual, the need for accompaniment uh, was there. And, and, and they, people found it in the church. And the church itself underwent a transformation in Argentina, you know, it changed as a result of that experience of being a field hospital. And I think that's the, the invitation now to us. And I think there are going to be a lot of people 
who are going to take up that invitation. And sadly, there are going to be some who want to run into the fortress uh, and they want to they want to fantasize about the 1950s and they want to dream of some national populist restoration uh, of Christendom. You know, and hey, that'll happen. But I think people will the majority of people get Francis, they understand Francis. They, it's very simple. For most people, Francis is the icon of Christ in our world. He reminds them of Christ. He helps them to understand who Christ is. He makes them feel like they're in the presence of Christ. That's the Pope's job. He's doing it. People love him for it. And I think he's still got a lot of leadership left of the church. You know, uh, he's not a young man, but I don't see any uh, waning of his energies. And I think this pandemic crisis and its aftermath, I think we'll probably begin to understand as never before why the Holy Spirit wanted him as Pope. Well, thank you, Austin, for joining us. This was, has been a very enlightening and very interesting conversation. Glad to have you. Thank you for accepting our invitation. It's been really great to be with you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for listening to this edition of Peter's Field Hospital. On behalf of David Lafferty and Austin Ivory, I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, take care. 